Hello, my name is Michelle Yonachan, the wandering book collector, and this is my podcast, conversations with writers exploring what's informed their books and their lives around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. The Wandering Book Collector podcast is supported by Cox and Kings. I'm joined by the writer and scholar Ngugi Wathyongo. His numerous books have included Wrestling with the Devil, which reflects on his imprisonment back in 1978. He was held for a year in a maximum security prison in Kenya without being charged for a crime, without trial. He was thrown in prison because of a play he wrote for community theater. While Ngugi was incarcerated, he wrote his first novel in his mother tongue, Gakoyo. The name of that book, Katani Mutrabaini, its title in English is Devil on the Cross. Other books include Weep Not, Child, The River Between, A Grain of Wheat, more recently, Birth of a Dreamweaver, a memoir of a writer's awakening. And of his time at school in the House of the Interpreter, more recently, a novel in verse, The Perfect Nine, the epic of Gekoyo and Mumbi. He's so prolific, I could go on and on. Ngugi, welcome to The Wandering Book Collector. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Mm. Ngugi, you've moved around the world as a student, as a writer, as a teacher, and as someone who's been in prison in the country of their birth, Kenya, and who spent years in self-imposed exile, now living and working in the US, where is home? Oh my God. <laughs> there was a time when I thought I knew where home was. And when I was growing up in Kenya, I was born in Kenya in 1938. And Kenya was a British settler colony. Uh, and so the land occupied by black people was on one side of the railway line and the one occupied by British white settlers was on the other side of the railway line. Okay, you know. Uh, I grew up, I was born in a big household, father who had uh, four wives or whom I call former, had he had four wives, but for us, they were our mothers. So I think I like to think of we had one father and four mothers, right? Uh, so we grew up really now in a large compound, you know, we, like one big family, yeah? But all the community around was also a family, yeah? But later when my mother uh, and my father separated, and we became one parent household. That's my mother's household. We moved to another area, but within the larger community. Okay. So I always thought my home would be there, <laughs> Lemuru, where I was born, when I grew up, where I knew everybody, I knew every path, more or less, you know. Um, Although later, uh, in 1960, uh, 19, oh my God, 55, when I went to Alliance High School or high school, uh, when I came back home, uh, I found that the village, which I used to call home, had also shifted <laughs> to yet a new village which was a kind of concentration camp or British concentration village, right? So my, what I was trying to say, my, my, what I was growing, I thought I knew that Limuru was my home where I was born. And my imagination was later I would grow up, get married, get children, and my children would build houses near me. So now and then we'll be having this. My dream was hey, we would be having this family assembly, you know, right? But it never was like that in reality. In reality, I went to high school, which is a dorm for dorm or residential 
kind of schooling for four years. Then I went to college in Makerere, uh, in Kampala, Uganda, which is a neighboring country, right? <laughs> then <laughs> came back home and then to England for, <laughs> for uh, from 1965 to 1967, uh, came back home and I thought I would settle now and with my family now and my children, some of whom were already born when I was a student in Makerere, would now create that family I'd already dreamt of, you know, one village community. Uh, uh, but things never seemed to settle for me. Because soon after I started as a journalist, I had problems with the Kenyan government at the time. And I went on a mini exile uh, in Uganda and then America. Uh, uh, <laughs> then I came back uh, to Nairobi in 1972. Uh, then thinking now, I have a job at the University of Nairobi, chair of the Department of Literature. I would, this is a time to settle, <laughs> right? I even built a house in the village in readiness for the big family or what I, I uh, something to call home. And then I get December 1977, December that first, I am taken from my house to a detention camp or to, to maximum security prison, commit a maximum security prison. So what I'm trying to say, I've never been able to settle in a place I thought was home. I've been on the move throughout. From prison, I came back and then was forced into exile, right? From 1982. And in exile, I always thought I'd pack my things ready to move back to Kenya. I was like, dreamt of what I would do when I go back to Kenya, right? Now, I never went back until 23 years later. And then when I go there, we, 11 days into being there, we were attacked by armed gunmen, Indian huh? by the state, right? <laughs> so it's running away again, back to, <laughs> uh, into exile. So the home I always dreamt of is not there, but I found a home wherever I go. Huh? I've lived in many places. I've lived in Sweden. Uh, I've even got a son in Sweden, uh, Dion. Uh, I've lived in England for a long time, uh, made friends there, felt at home. Uh, and for the last 23 years, I've lived in uh, America, uh, California, which I think is more like home to me, right? So <laughs> the home I dreamt of is always there in my mind, but it's never there, Ryan. Yeah. In it, I feel at home wherever I go. <laughs> is there something, Ngugi, is there something about this movement, this motion that acts like an engine for your work, mm. it kind of propels you, or, or has all this kind of forced migration or sometimes voluntary migration consequence of politics, moving to escape persecution or take up work opportunities. Has that been you know, at best an inconvenience you know, or at worst? Yeah, for me, work? really, I mean, generally, I was, I, home was, let's see, home was where my mother was. Right? I was home with my mother. Then she died when I was in exile and I could not see her. Right? I could not go back uh, to Bariham. Her name was Wanjiko. Uh, so, and yet, ironically, the very fact that I've been away from Kenya makes me think of Kenya all the time. And I can see my work, near, near all my work, 
is based on Kenya. Now it's based in Kenya and on Kenya, right? So although I've been away from that hole, but it's still there in me. Yeah. Uh, but I cannot deny that California has been home to me. Yeah. The many people I meet here of different uh, languages and nationalities and religions and color of the skin. And uh, I like to think of myself as a nomad who never, <laughs> as, a, as an intellectual nomad, <laughs> right? How about that? Yeah. And, and as a writer, Nguyi, what, what do you miss of Kenya? Well, I think what I miss most, yeah. You see, somewhere in my writing career, I started writing in English, as so many African writers do, write in English or French or Portuguese or whichever was the language of colonialism. But I, I broke away from that. When I went to prison, as a result of writing a play in the for a village community, I my views on language completely changed. Uh, and I write in a Gekoyo. More, all, all my novels since 1977, more, all my novels and short stories and drama have been, and poetry has been my mother tongue in a Gekoyo language. The only thing I've written in English since then were memoirs. Yeah, okay. So, what do I miss? That's what I miss most, to be in a place, to be part of the Gekoyo language, language community. Because as a writer, the, what you say in a bus, when you're traveling by a bus, or in a marketplace, or in a shop, or along the road, those little, I mean, I don't know, whatever they say is part of my inspiration. Uh, so I miss that language community, a living language community of Gekoyo speakers. I don't have one in California, right? And I cannot call telephone communication as a, <laughs> as a, a language community, yeah. It, that reminds me, Ngugi, of, of a passage from Wrestling with the Devil where you note this. Writers need people around them. They thrive on live struggles of active life. In writing a novel, I love to hear the voices of people working the land, forging metal in a factory, telling anecdotes in a crowded matatu, gyrating their hips in a crowded bar before a jukebox or a live band. So yes, rich material in Googie. That's what I miss most. That's true, it describes my inspiration. And uh, I miss a lot the changing terms in a language. You know, language changes all the time. And as a writer, you need to be aware the language is changing all the time. The new phrases, the new way, I mean, all those things help you. So I'm, so I'm a writer in a language who lives in a, an English speaking environment in California, you know, uh, yeah. So, yeah, but at the same time, it is interesting that I'm always in such, because I'm exiled from that language, I'm always striving for that language. I, I'm trying to be in communion with it all the time, yeah. Irony, I'm far away from it, uh, but I try and somehow or other be in touch. But I do miss actually being in them. Uh, what I liked most when I lived in Kenya was just marketplaces or even drinking bars where people, whatever people are gathered, they always found it very, very vibrating and very vibrations of life there, right? Um, I liked just sitting in a, we are in Kenya, we have a transport system called Matato, which is a kind of a minibus. And when you travel in a minibus, it's like you're in a living community. 
the stories people tell, huh? the confessions that take place there. Huh? You feel like you'd write a novel, and I actually did write one novel where a large part of it was traveling a matatu. Yeah, the novel wrote in Koyo, Shaitan Mudravaine, or Devil Devil on the Cross. The first part of the novel is really traveling in that matatu and what goes on there, right? So I miss that. Life is for writer, life is what you do, is it's not what they preach in church or in a lecture hall, is the little things they do in the streets. Yeah? The dress they wear, not the formal ones when they are weddings and ceremonies, but ordinarily uh, the oddities of travel or walk or or leaves falling or birds, you know, singing or whatever. Here in California, I do it in my backyard and I do actually try to communicate with the birds, with the doves that come to my backyard and and butterflies and bees and so on. I sit in my backyard and I literally just enjoy looking at them. Yeah. But rather be looking at those butterflies in Kenya <laughs> and the bees in Kenya and the and in the coil where I call language is spoken. Yeah. What I read out um Ngugi was from the book Wrestling with the Devil, which is a version of an earlier work of yours, Detained, a writer's prison diary, which you published yes. in 1982. Why did you want to revisit that work? I did not actually rewrite it, I just edited it. In an earlier version, there are many documentaries, docu documentations of prison this, prison that. And I just want to tell the story of, to, I so that what was left was just a story of my experience in prison and the experience of writing the novel devil on the cross right yeah so wrestling with the devil becomes the devil of so many things there's a devil of the title of devil on the cross you know but the demons also when you were writing in a cool language in the first novel in a cool language in prison it's oh my god the thing I remember most, there's no tradition of novel writing in Gekoyo in language. I was writing the first novel in Gekoyo language. And, but I was so conditioned to doing everything in English that when you try to write in Gekoyo, I'm telling you, and this is, and I'm not joking, there's a little devil <laughs> that would come and whisper in my ears, more in my inner ear telling me, why are you, why you, why you go through all that pain to look for a word you don't have? And I'm ready, I'm here for you. That's, of course, the devil will come in English clothes. <laughs> the devil will come dressed in English robes. Almost remind me that he is there. They are there. He is there to help me with the words ready. <laughs> so, I had to struggle with that devil all the time. Because when you're writing in a language, new language, so to speak, and you're conditioned to write in another language, the, the challenges may make you feel, oh, the temptation to go back to the other language is always there. Yeah, it's always there. So you have to fight to struggle. I just try with that devil. And I wanted to write about that as well, uh, to bring that out. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted next week to be the experience of writing the novel, Devil on the Cross, in Eco language and under prison conditions. Yeah. Well, talking of prison conditions, it, it, while you were in prison and, and writing that, it was it was being written by you on toilet paper, the only available material you noted this paper, any paper is about the most precious article for a political prisoner. Oh, yeah. Also for one like me who was imprisoned without trial for his writing. Can you remember, Ngugi, how it felt 
to be writing behind bars, the actual act of putting the point of the pen on the flat surface of the toilet paper. Yeah. First of all, to get the paper itself and to get pen, you know, it's like, <laughs> in, in our case, first of all, they, they made sure that we had no newspapers, we had no radio, and of course, no TV, uh, not that there was much TV in those days anyway, right? <laughs> and I'm a writer, I'm an intellectual, I mean, books are part of my life. So you are there, no books, no newspapers, no radio, and no companionship, because they don't allow you to be in groups. Let us be in groups for a long time. Also, the excitement of, I mean, I mean I'm telling you, it's literally toilet paper. And this toilet paper we had came in, uh, you know, the soft thing kind that I see advertised on TV here in America, where it looks so soft and delicate and all that. It was a bit uh, tighter, more. Anyway, it was very good writing material. That's like, it was the pen very, very well, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it was actually fun writing a cool language on this toilet paper, huh? right? And then other things well, become very interesting. But the toilet paper becomes a precious, <laughs> precious uh, a treasury. It's like a treasury you have, right? It's something precious, <laughs> toilet paper, holding it, right? Yeah, you know, it's, it's amazing, yeah. I imagine that your efforts to find a way to write and, and risk and make and taking risks in doing so was about your recording and your documenting and your not forgetting of the experience. But but then I read this line in, in that book, which was this writing this novel has been a daily, almost hourly assertion of my will to remain human and free. Mm -hmm. How so, Ngugi? Because everything prison, at least in that prison which I went to, sort of dehumanize you. Right. It's, like being, you are, you live, we live in cells or other cell, and mine was a, first of first, the first thing you get when you get there, when I got to commit a maximum, maximum security prison, is just losing your name. Googie, Wadion, the name by which I'd written so many novels, or the title professor of literature, which I was at the University of Nairobi, right? You're just a number. Uh, I think it was K something, six, seven, seven, or something. It was just a number, literally a number, right? So, and then you are caged, literally you are caged in a little cage, that's your room. Right? You're not allowed to interact with other prisoners, except as, say, lunchtime. I mean, it's all, everything is human, really. In uh, They may not even torture you in the obvious torture uh, methods, but being prison is continuous torture, really. So, and the other thing which I noted uh, is the way sameness of everything. Then you realize life is variety, is colors, changing colors, it's things moving, all right? And here, one day is like another day. So yes. you felt you want to break that, that sameness, right? So writing for me was a way of entering into a world which was full of people, full of color, talking, Talking jokes and so on. It was a way of communicating, almost like I could every night I could visualize my village again. I could see myself walking in my village again. I was free. Imagination made me free. Huh? There was nothing they could do about my imagination. Huh? And that was really almost I don't I don't ever forget. 
the importance of imagination. Yeah. Because imagination made me free. They couldn't hold that back. There was no way they could do it. Right? Yeah. And turning to Gekoyo and, 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 and to write in, in the language. And Charlie writing in Gekoyo, and I'm in, in prison for writing in Gekoyo language. And I'm in prison writing in the same language, which was the base of my incarceration, with paper provided by the government, with pen provided by the state, with food provided by the state, clothes provided by the state, right? So, so, so I, I, I was the other way around. I mean, the state was <laughs> giving everything right. <laughs> In a way, I mean, yeah. It's a way of surviving, you know, seeing, looking at things. And then imagine helping you to cope with that reality by creating, I like to think of it as a resistance. Uh, uh, by creating kind of imagination, help it get a resistance against the very conditions under which you are living. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you you spoke earlier about wrestling with with language because at first it wasn't as straightforward or maybe as natural. You know, even though it was the language of your parents and your family, Yakoyo, is it now Yugi, much? Is it much easier? Is the flow much easier? writing a koyo. No, I, no, I'm all used to it now. So that, that little devil is not the same way. Yes. I mean, because that at prison, the devil was real because mm. you, you're frustrated. Mm. Because you're, you're used to thinking one language, English. So words had to come in that language. So when you come to a new term and you don't have any koyo, it's like you, you might get frustrated. But then the English word you know, telling like the devil brings the word there in front of you. Ah, but I'm here. Why, Kobe? Why are you? I'm sorry. That was, why are you? You know, I'm here, ready for you. So it's very easy to kind of ah, let me grab it and mm. continue. No, yeah. So it do was, you, has there been a shift in Googie? Do you do you now think and remember? Yeah. No. No. Yeah. I now tend, yeah. I don't. The devil doesn't do that much in these days. Yeah. I even give a lecture. The other day, uh, in Ikoyo, uh I got a prize, uh, a literary prize in uh, Spain, uh, uh, and I spoke in Ikoyo, <laughs> and I felt very good accepting the prize in Ikoyo language, and they had to, it was broadcast in Ikoyo, but they had to put subtitles their television screens, uh, right. Progress. And I felt good. I felt good. <laughs> the, you know what? The devil doesn't is not really around me as much as it used to be in, in prison. It's so real. You know? And does writing yeah. in Gekoyo give you a freedom, particular to the language, to its resonance or its? Uh, yeah. Now I can explore more things. I feel more free to play around with the language more. Huh? I'm not struggle. I'm struggling to. Let I use the language. When I wrote that novel, I was struggling to even use the language as a as a for creative imagination, struggling, right, to accept the words, right, or to find the words, right. Now I don't have that. Let me say the English devil is not. <laughs> It's not the anymore. Yeah. That that decision that you made to write books in Yakoyo was was fifty or so years ago. Right. Has there since been, do you feel, a sufficient awakening among African writers and scholars who've since turned to and returned to their African language? Yeah. Or is it or is it slower going than you than It's you still going, but see, but still better better than when I wrote. You know what happened was that after I published my novels in uh, Ikoyo, I also wrote, gave some lectures in New Zealand, Auckland, which I published under the title, Decolonizing Mind. And I never knew that that text would resonate in many, with many people all over the world. Yeah. From native 
Native Americans, Hawaiian writers, uh, Maori writers, uh, you know, because speaking to a colonial situation where language was used as a way of uh, destroying a people's sense of themselves, right? If whether it's Native American and Native Canadians or Native Australians, New Zealanders, all in some European languages also, it's a global phenomenon, okay? Yeah, and people forget, we are made to forget that you don't have to, uh, knowing another language should not be conditioned on your forgetting yours or being humiliated for your language, okay? But that if you know your mother tongue, okay, let me, this is where I put it. If you know all the languages of the world and you don't know your mother tongue or the language of your culture, that is enslavement. But if you know your mother tongue or the language of your culture and add to it all the language of the world, that is empowerment, you know. And colonialism was not about empowerment. It was about the other way around, it was enslavement. Now I know I can write in Ikoyo, I can write in Kiswahili, I can write in English, and I wish I knew Spanish or Yoruba or Zulu, right? But anyway, it's, there's no contradiction in my knowing my mother tongue and adding other languages to it, right? It's giving more power, but to be humiliated for speaking your mother tongue, ah, it's horrible, right? It's your mother tongue, it's, it's, you should add it to it. But you know, all colonial, whether in, uh, in Kenya, but also, they happen also in you know, New Zealand, you know, in uh, Canada, in America. Same pattern where children were actually humiliated and punished, punished for speaking their mother tongue in a school compound, right? What does it mean? To humiliate a child for speaking their mother tongue and to reward that child for speaking another language, right? Yeah. And this is what, to me, when I look at the world today, that's one of the serious problems. But all over the world, some languages are marginalized, but and but yes, but it's using the wrong assumption that to create a nation you must have one language. Yes, to connect to have one language of communication across many languages, that's all right. But it's not predicted on forgetting or being uprooted from your mother tongue. It's wrong in Wales, it was wrong in Ireland. It was wrong in Scotland. It was wrong uh, in northern uh, Scandinavian countries and so on, right? Yeah. It was wrong when uh, Japan colonized Korea, Korea 1910 to 1945 and they imposed Japanese language and Japanese names on the Koreans. Yeah. And it's wrong in America, North and South, right? right. As I mentioned in Googie earlier, it was it was writing and putting on a play in a community theatre that got you thrown in prison in the 1970s. But last year, that play, Ngahika Ndinda, or I Will Marry When I Want, performed in Nairobi finally at the National Theatre in both Gekoyo and yeah. English. How did you feel sitting in the audience? No, I was not there myself. I wish I was there. <laughs> How did you feel hearing about the fact? I was in California, but I'm, 
obviously I was very glad to see, it, see so many people, young generation. But remember there were some who were, remember it was banned for five years ago. <laughs> so the children who were born <laughs> when the play was on were now in their fifties. I mean, <laughs> right? So there are many people in Kenya who had never seen the play, who have heard about it, but they never saw it, right? And now it was being done in national theater. Of course, the only difference, quite a major one, is that whereas art was really based in a village community among working people, there's one of them by professional actors. Yeah. More, well, or semi professional actors in Nairobi. Yeah. But I was so glad that it's back. And they are telling me that they might do even another one of mine again, which was not allowed. It's called Mother Sing for Me. My told you, girl, they are doing it again in Nairobi, in Koyo and English. Yeah. So that was, was not even allowed. That one. We're going to perform that one, the national data. But this time, they even locked us out, actually physically locked us out of the theater. Yeah. And put armed policemen. It surrounded the theater. I mean, it was horrible, right? Mm. So they're doing it again. Mother sing for me, right? So I'm very excited. I wanted to read out something you wrote in Birth of a Dreamweaver. It's this. I grew up in a race-structured society where white was wealth, power, and privilege, and black was poverty, impotence, and burden, where white yeah. was indolence and black was diligence, a society where white harvested what blacks planted. Yeah. Between your long stretches of absence in Googie, how has huh? Kenya changed since you're growing up? No, it's not rich. Okay. Uh, okay. Was, if you look at the whole world today, the globe right now, is structured in the same way, right? Pyramid, whether you're in America or somewhere else. Pyramid means by definition that only a few people can be at the top of the pyramid, right? That there will be more people at the base of the pyramid and a few others in the middle. Huh? A very few, tiny minority at the top, right? The difference, though, is in the case of the colony, the colony, that whether you're at the bottom or middle or at the top or purely based on race, right? Meaning black people, African people as a whole, occupy the bottom of the pyramid, Asians or, you know, well, more or less in the middle of the pyramid, and Europeans at the top of the pyramid, right? That is still, in terms of pyramid structure of Assad, that's still true today. Huh? In America, it's the same thing. A few people at the top of the pyramid. Yeah. The, uh, in Kenya, in the, post, the difference, though, is in a way, the racial barriers, the movement up and down the pyramid re remained, and I, I, I removed, right? But the pyramid structure, all that stuff remains. Yeah? So it doesn't matter whether, I mean, it matters, of course, but if the structure so that remains the same, a few people at the top. The only difference now is that those few people at the top can be black and African. But the majority are still at the bottom of the pyramid, right? That's a problem. Most working people in the world have occupy the bottom of the pyramid, or most societies. Uh, you look at America, the people they call in America they measure everybody millionaireship. I don't know; it's a weird thing, but millionaires. But the people. There are only very few, uh, you know, I'm told that there are very few millionaires or billionaires or trillionaires, and at the few people at the top, 10 of them or so, have more money than <laughs> the rest of the society combined together or something. I mean, something, something which is difficult to, even to imagine, but that's the reality. Yeah. 
But I'm saying that structure tends to be there everywhere. You know what? Given, okay, in all capitalist society, it is there. The difference is that in a colonial societies, uh, or where there is racism, that also tends to be complicated or governed by race. Yeah. And Gigi, your life spanned a time when colonial empires have been crumbling and new nations being born. And it's given you this rich seam of material for your writing, but it's also given you at least an early life you describe as a time spent nervously looking over my shoulder in constant fear of falling victim to the gun toting British forces that were everywhere. That's from the house. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about how you've managed to keep your writing considered and balanced and, and calm too. And is that who you are or have you had to really work on not becoming kind of too no, I mean, damaged? No, I children everywhere. I sometimes seeing pictures of people fighting Palestine or people being, oh, when there's a war in the Middle East or Iraq war, and you see children playing on those trucks yeah tanks or yeah yeah, yeah. tanks yeah i mean all playing there oh, right I say, oh my god and yeah and you i look at it was oh my god do they know what they're doing they're playing right in other words life refuses huh, to be uh like a life fights back in a way yeah. and when i see those children right when I see those children playing other times, at first they feel old, oh, no. And then, yeah, they are refusing to die. That's very amazing to me. And I try to get inspiration from that. I look at Kenya and I ask myself, how is it that any weapons to speak of, they could think they could fight against the British, go to war against the British in Kenya with everything, right? They're the state machinery, they're the soldiers, they're the policemen, they're the guards, they're weaponry. Yes. Wow. And so I said, I still amazed. Because if you look at uh, America, for instance, both all America from Canada, from North America to, uh, it's very interesting uh, that in all the early settler colonies all over the world, is the settlers, is the colonizers who say, they are now independent, not the colonized. Mm. Okay. Not the colonized. In America, it's not the, it's not the, it's not the Native American who were colonized who say now we we got our independence. In New Zealand, it's not the Maoris who say we are independent. In Canada, it's the same thing. It's not the Native Canadians or, or Native Australians who say they are independent. It's the colonist generally. Uh, who now say they are independent. <laughs> I mean, right? So, and this was a trend that was going on in the world. Kenya was the first to fight against that trend of white settler colonies, Samohara becoming independent under the same colonial. Huh? Yes. Kenya, right? Because South Africa was going that way, but Kenya was the first to stand up mm. and resist that, break the whole trend, break that tendency, which was in Canada, in America, South America, Australia, to New Zealand, Kenya. Yeah. So I'm very proud of my Kenyan ancestors, but I'm amazed what made them think they could do it. That's what amazes me all the time. Mm. What made them dare? Yeah. And you're returning to the idea of home. In your book, In the House of the Interpreter, you write this after your family home, as, as you said earlier, was destroyed by the British. And, and you return to see this new place where your family has been forced to move to. And you wrote, I was going to live out my life in a home that reminded me of the loss of home. And in school that offered shelter, 
but not the certainty of home. Both, ironically, were colonial constructs. Uh -huh. And that, those are your words in Googie. And, and I felt like that paradox does appear quite constantly in your life and hasn't gone away also because young Kenyans today yeah. are facing some of the same issues you face. The best education is still in institutions set up by the former colonial powers, for yeah. example. And change is so slow, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's, I mean, I, I mean, what am I, what am I in America? America. Uh, I was forced out of Kenya. How do you where do you get a job? As a Yale, as a visiting professor of English and comparative literature. New York University professor of English, uh, of comparative literature in English, of course. And of course, here in in uh, in America, California, University of California, Irvine. You know, I'm professor of uh, English. And comparative literature. The products are always there. I'm here in America, professor of English, writing in a Koyo language. And my big novel, uh, Wizard of the Crow, huh? I don't think it's Koyo. <laughs> so there are all those paradoxes. Mm. Uh, I learned to, I became, of course, I wanted. I grew up in a house of storytelling, but the novels in English are the one who gave me the freedom to tell myself stories. Huh? I couldn't read stories for myself, but most of them were written in English at the time. Yes. Dickens. I was moved huh? also, Ngugi, by how you, at a, at a very young age, you realized the importance of community when you lost your family home, when you lost your village actually where your family's home was and and you searched for a sense of belonging through volunteering groups and even initiated ways of bringing people together through song and societies you wrote this you said it could be that i was still looking for a community to replace the home i had lost have you found a sense of belonging <laughs> no now actually i can i think in terms of such for language, I was very, uh, how should I say, um, I was very moved when uh, there was a, a, a Native American writer yes. uh, from Colombia mm. uh, who was in Quechua, and she came, she flew all the way here to California to see me. Uh, why? Not because of my novels, but because of what I had said about language mm. <laughs> in the colonizing the mind, right? Yes. It resonates with her, yes. right? Now they're in Quechua and in, and in Spanish, yes. right? Uh, I once went to India some three or five years ago, I don't remember, Calcutta. It was one of my publishers in Calcutta. And when the native speakers of, because India has also very many languages, but small, small language when they had, I was there. Seven leaders of seven language communicating to see me, right? Yeah. Why? Because of the colors in the mind, right? Hawaii, <laughs> uh, the same thing. I have a similar reception in Hawaii. I had mm. a similar reception among the Maori people in New Zealand, right? Yeah. It, the lecture colonized the mind speak to them. That's why they identify with it, right? Yeah. So when they, I, you know, when I, I, I feel, okay, I may have lost home, but in essence, I'm a part of another larger community of language struggles all over the world, yeah. In The Perfect Nine, you wrote this about one of the daughters in the book, um, and I quote, I too will follow the dictates of my heart the same way you once did. And she says this speaking to her parents. I will go out in the world to find my own Makurawani, which was the name you gave of the place her family called home. Yeah. I wondered if you think you might live in Kenya again. Oh, I want to. <laughs> I'm now, I'm now eight or five. 
as you keep dreaming of, of, <laughs> of relocating Kenya. Uh, I yeah, uh, I'd love to. I meet the five. I will live long enough to relocate in Kenya. If, if I don't, it's just it was always my dream to retire in Kenya, and if I can do it, if the political situation allows me, I'll go back. Yeah. Um, and Gigi, yeah. I wanted to I wanted to finish up by asking uh, you about your, what you're writing, and I think you're currently writing something about your time when you were at the University of Leeds in the UK. Can you tell me? Anything? I've not written that yet. I, I have I have had um, oh sorry about that, but I've had um, kidney failure, uh, kidneys. My kidneys have failed. Oh my me. goodness! So I'm struggling to get back on my feet. Yeah. So once I get back on my feet, I want to write one more memoir of my years in Leeds because it was a very important period of my life. Okay. Between 1976, uh, writers like Franz Fanon, the writer of the earth, or Count Connor with Marx, yeah. and so on, right? It's a very important period in my life. But I'll do one more novel in Ikoyo. Just one more, just one more novel uh, in Ikoyo. Oh, just one more, just one more. And right? <laughs> thank you so much for taking us. Oh, thanks so much, yeah. And my thanks to the supporter of this podcast, Cox and Kings. Goodbye.